Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat. Welcome to podcast number 24. My name is Naaman Jorker Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest Steve Bland who talked about being a bystander to cancer. Um, if you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest for today Professor Heidi Prost who will be discussing her career, um, research and why the patient's voice is so important. Um, hi Heidi. Hi. So please could you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Yes, and thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, so I'm currently Professor of Radiotherapy and Oncology here at Sheffield Hallam University. I started my career as a clinical radiographer. I did my training at the London Hospital in Whitechapel, and then I moved up to Leeds, where I did most of my clinical practice before I moved into academia. So I did a PhD while I was a clinical radiographer, and uh, after I'd come to the end of the PhD, I moved into education as a senior lecturer and then uh, I managed to become well I was appointed reader in uh, 2013 which is like an associate professor position and then in 2015 I was I applied to be a professor and I was successful so um, I've been in that role since 2015 most recently in 2020 I was appointed as the director for the health research institute here at Sheffield Hallam which is a new position and so that's a secondment type role, so I'm in that position for three years. Thank you. And I think important to say, very amazing career, um, obviously a brilliant role model for many. Um, I suppose for anyone listening and they might not fully understand, um, what is the most recognised route to becoming a professor? Well, I, I guess the most recognised route is through education. So when you're an academic, um, either as a uh, lecturer or as a researcher, you can um, apply to become a professor after a period of time, after you've got um, a certain level of... Uh, if There are two routes, actually, to professors in academia. You can either do it as a researcher, uh, if, you're, if that's your area of specialism, or if you've got a long-standing experience and lots of activity at a senior level in teaching and learning, you can apply through the teaching and learning route to be professor as well. Um, so it's done through an application process, it's a procedure through the university, um, it involves putting together a really strong CV with all of your evidence about the impact that you've had both locally, nationally and regionally um, and even globally um, into a, a sort of a package of, of demonstrating your skills to be at that level. So that's the most traditional route. Um, there are sometimes uh, job adverts for um, open for people to come to a a post that is titled as a professor of something um, so sometimes you can see those advertised um, and they're at a specific grade. You also ha have a lot more clinical academics now um, we have a few in radiography not that many not enough I think we probably need a lot more um, but I've got some fantastic clinical colleagues who are also just been awarded um, academic titles of professor as well or associate professor um, and that's joint so they're working clinically but they have a sort of um, either a honorary contract with the university or part of their role um, is is funded by the university and they are either an associate professor or a professor a full-blown professor and that comes again with lots of experience and evidence of your capability across either teaching and learning or research okay is there a minimum number of publications you have to have <gasps> Heidi's racking her brain thinking, yeah. oh my yeah. gosh, is there some document somewhere? <laughs> no, I think the answer is no. I think it's about, 
it's about dem- it's like most things on your CV. It's about demonstrating what impact you've had, and it's about being clear about what impact you have. So not necessarily publications. Publications are really important, um, and it's it's about the quality of those publications and the reach and the impact. Um, but there are other things beyond publications that are important as well in terms of um, some. So, for example, if I talk about myself, because that's easier for me to give an example. I was very lucky to do a lot of work with the College of Radiographers during my career. I was on their um, research, their national research group, and it's the impact that you have through those routes, you know, writing the research strategy for the profession with other colleagues and the impact that has. Um, It's those sorts of outreach activities that are really important as well, the additional things, not just the things you do in the university and your publications and research. It's all of that um, activity that counts. That aligns actually really nicely to what other guests have said about almost reaching out, doing outreach, doing portfolio work, having an opportunity to almost explore collaboration and working with other colleagues. Um, Heidi, you, you know this, but you have always been inspiring to me. So I remember being your student sitting in in the lecture theatre, looking at this tiny little radiographer going, I want to be her. And um you know, it's always amazing every time you speak to someone and you go, oh, yeah, I work at Sheffield Hallam University. And they go, oh, that's where Heidi works. So it's always nice that you've kind of promoted the university and what we offer. But in terms of kind of your own personal experiences and working within research, I know that you have a patient voice or you've always included it, even before maybe some of the early researchers in radiography wasn't. Why do you think that was so important to you? Uh, it's a really good question, and I do remember you as a student, Jo. Do you? We, we go back a long way, don't we? You were, what, a you, big mouth. No, no, you were enthusiastic. That's what I liked about you. You were keen. That's and the polite way to put it. <laughs> um, the patient voice um, has always been really important. I think it was important to me as a clinical radiographer as well. Yeah. Um, I really, um, that was the, one of the best parts of the job, isn't it, is to work with patients and to listen to them I was loved listening to their stories and hearing about them as individuals and you have patients stories that stay with you forever yeah um, and that they never leave you and and that was always really important to me and I think I suppose my area of research my so my PhD was in breast cancer radiotherapy and um, I think I sort of started at that point trying to understand um, the patient experience because at that time my PhD was looking at uh, part of it was about uh, the technical delivery of radiotherapy but the other part was about um, and I'm laughing because it's I go on about this so much people must be sick of it but about tattoos patients yeah. and tattoos and at the time we had at, at least we did have quite a few patients who had refused to have tattoos or didn't want to have them and it's the yeah. only thing we have on offer yeah there is no other option it, there's no choice and so part of my PhD was around looking at the technical delivery of radiotherapy comparing tattoos versus no tattoos and trying to explain to people why it was important for some patients to not have a tattoo I found it incredibly frustrating Um, and I was I was once in a clinic um, recruiting patients and a nurse had asked me "Um, well why are you even bothering to do this research clearly um, your research is going to show that tattoos are more accurate why are you bothering and I I just found it really difficult to try and explain to them that actually some patients don't want a permanent reminder 
of their cancer experience. And actually, we don't know the answer. Um, and that's why we do the research, isn't it? And actually, the research went on to show that there was no difference in accuracy between the semi-permanent pen marks and the tattoos. And that actually, radiographers are very careful yeah. when they set patients up. And they can deliver really accurate treatment without permanent tattoos. But it is... It, that has become a passion of mine <laughs> about um, tattoos and people will know that I'm always going on about that so I'll stop talking about tattoos but I think it started there and and through my research the more you talk to patients and you understand their individual experiences and their individual journeys mm -hmm. you realize how important it is for us as healthcare practitioners to have a, an understanding of what patient of the patient experience and I want to just be a little kind of reinforce the importance of what patient experience is it's not just about oh making it nice yeah, for yeah, patients yeah. it's more than that so radiographers already care about patient experience they care about it being treatment being accurate being in the right place because we know that if we get things accurate then we're, we're aiming to reduce side effects by get, keeping it accurate we're talking about long-term um, outcomes of treatment about it, good local control and survival so we're already caring about patient experience so it's all of that but it's all of the other things as well yeah. it's those things around the ex the the little things that we know make a big difference to patients and it's about understanding what other things are happening to the patient in the other parts of the journey and the pathway um, and the impact that has on yeah. the patient so for example I think just as a, to sort of um, explain that in a little bit more detail we, we, we try to encourage for example breast cancer is my research area what the important thing for, for breast cancer patients is we're, we're told it's important to exercise after a diagnosis because we know it's good for reducing um, the risk of a, a recurrence and um, and that's great we know it's important but if you understand what a patient goes through when they're having breast cancer treatment you know being told that you've got a cancer the mental load and the emotional yeah. load from that diagnosis is exhausting yeah um, plus they're trying to live their normal lives they've got jobs they've got family they've got children they've got relationships they're still trying to keep all of that going and then you add in all of the treatments the yeah. chemotherapy the radiotherapy which makes you really tired the hormone treatment the impact of the hormone treatment you know some patients do have quite bad side effects from the hormone treatment they can Joints can be quite painful, and we're saying to them, go and exercise. Go and do yeah. some exercise. And we know it's important. They know it's important. Yeah. But it's a, it's just about understanding all of their, those experiences, um, so that we can we can support people better, I think, and do the best for them. The other thing I wanted to mention as well, I've got this fantastic PhD student who is just coming to the end of her PhD, and she's been looking at um, the patient's experience of living with breast, you know, breast or trunk lymphedema, and it's a it's not a very well understood side effect of breast cancer treatment. Um, and she's done this fantastic qualitative piece of research to listen to the patient stories. And, and that is about developing awareness in other patients, but also yeah. in healthcare professionals, because we don't understand it very well. Um, we know that it happens, but some of those stories that she has managed to um, gain from, from listening to patients through that research it's an absolute eye-opener in terms of how we support patients, how we inform them, how we make sure that they're prepared and they're empowered. Yeah. Um, so because it has a massive impact on their quality of life. And also, if we don't pick it up early enough, 
um, there's no cure for, for lymphedema, yeah. but you can treat it. And the earlier you treat it, the better. So it's important as practitioners that we understand it, that we can pick it up and listen yeah. to, to those experiences because patients know their own bodies and they know when something's not quite right. Sorry, did I answer that question? You absolutely, no, you absolutely did. And it does definitely align with other guests that we've had on, you know, from that patient experience perspective. They love the fact that healthcare professionals can offer them advice about what side effects they may get. But actually, it's the practical advice. So, you know, what am I going to experience? How can I deal with it? Ultimately, you know, if you are having sexual dysfunction, what is it that you can do? Mm -hmm. Rather than saying you may experience X, Y, and Z, you want that practical help and support and using the patient voice in that area is really important. And we've said it before, but it's very easy, especially for a lot of the um, universities and apprenticeships that are training therapeutic radiographers or diagnostic radiographers to use that patient voice in the curriculum. You know, it's so we know how important it is, but it's very easy when you're qualified you're working all the hours God sends. You don't get any time out of practice to do CPD. And and then someone goes, are you listening to the patient voice? And you're like, I haven't got time to go for a wee. Yeah, <laughs> How am I? Get-? So it is so important, but it's thinking about that whole CPD time. When are you utilising the research, the evidence base to be able to help change and improve the experience for patients, but improve practice as yeah. well? Absolutely. I've, I, I must plug, we had um, we run a cancer management uh, research se- seminar series at Hallam. Big plug there, sorry. <laughs> but the reason I wanted to mention it is because the last one we had was a, um, uh, a nurse from the Royal Marsden who spoke about her research on um, uh, patients who have a diagnosis of, of cancer who also have HIV. And she had some patient story videos. And they are so powerful. The, yeah. the stories from listening to patients just tell, tell you something about what we need to do as practitioners far, um, far better than we can, I yeah. think, yeah. As, as educators. I think what you touched on nicely is the holistic care. It's a bit of a fluffy term that we use, but mm. you want to treat all of the patient. So I know from my experience working in review, just open questions. So what do you do outside of being having cancer treatment, for example? So they may have a hobby. I know some patients are kind of getting more into art, so especially through lockdown, having a project. So art therapy is something. I know there are art therapists as well uh, coming into the cancer world a bit more, but it's just, as you said, it's nice to get to know the patient. You see them for 15 fractions, uh, sometimes for breast cancer or five, but through what I do now is a lot of telephone reviews and you do get to know the the same patient. You can talk for hours with some patients because they haven't had a chance to open up like that. So maybe they might have had a six-month wait for counselling, for example, from the diagnosis till... You know, they've almost finished radiotherapy and they're all back to their, what they say, they're back to their new normal. That's when you kind of capture their emotions and then they open that up, as you said, and then it's almost six months later sometimes things can really hit some of the patients. So it is, when you get to know them, it's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. And and we know from some of the literature as well, um, the, the research evidence, that the patient experience and how we look after the patients during the cancer treatment has an impact on how they how they move on um, afterwards and how would they whether they go back to work for example that sort of ability to be prepared for the next stage I think it's really important yeah and you touched quite nicely on patient experiences um, for people undergoing so breast cancer was your focus um, do you want to talk a bit about more what you've been involved in since your PhD specifically yeah so um, the work that I'm involved in at the moment I have a couple of main projects um, 
uh, one is called the Vismaya project and the other is called the support for all project so the support for all project um is a project where we have been developing a um, special bra support bra for women undergoing um, breast cancer radiotherapy uh, particularly for women who've had um, a wide local excision and they have an intact breast and so the purpose of the bra is multi-factored but uh, the main reasons are to um, support the breast um, for radiotherapy to lift it away from the chest wall to help reduce the dose to um, organs at risk such as the lung and the heart um, but also for women who've got slightly larger breasts to lift it away to kind of improve that inframammary fold so that you get a better or uh, reduce the skin reaction in that inframammary fold. You know, we, we've seen that as practitioners quite can get quite sore under there. So that's some of the technical aspects to the bra. The other reason for me as well is to provide some dignity and modesty for patients during radiotherapy because at the moment patients lie naked from the waist upwards, have done for years, that's how we've treated them. And you have to remember that, that patients are coming at a time um, quite often close after their surgery at a time when we know that, that they've got a modified body image and they're just getting used to a new changed self and we're expecting them to lie naked in front of people that there lots of people in the setting room like the radiographers and it doesn't matter that they're lovely and kind it's yeah. you know it can yeah. be difficult yeah. and some women don't mind um but some women do and it's so for us it's an opportunity to provide some dignity and modesty so the bra is designed so that um you fit it at, at ct planning stage the patient then takes it home they put it on at home they come in it so they don't have to sit in the waiting room in a gown they can just walk into the room take their top off and lie on the bed and they're covered up and the marks are all on the, the bra i, I so. always struggled with that in clinical seeing lots of women all sitting in a row sitting with gowns on with no bras on and i just thought i always used to say we can't do this and i know it helps with the time yeah. aspect of, of treating patients but it must be so difficult you know sitting there and almost looking around knowing what you're having treated because of what gown you're wearing oh, exactly and that came out in the, the first bit of research we did so this bra is co-designed with patients and healthcare practitioners uh, we did it together with them and that was actually one of the messages that came out is that patients realize that they know who yeah. the patients with breast cancer because nobody else is wearing a gown yeah. because everybody else can just you know, <laughs> yeah. prostate cancer patients just slip their trousers down, don't they? And um, and they're not undressed. They have to get undressed mostly. Yeah. Um, some radiotherapy departments are really well designed, and um, so for example, in Leeds, you can actually go into the cubicle and you come out the other side. So yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. But not every radiotherapy department has that luxury of having the design of the department yeah. in such a lovely way. Um, so it goes to show, though, doesn't it, why NHS trusts need to invest in the staff and patients when they're designing departments. Yeah, and I absolutely. know, like the new proton centres and things, they had so much input from radiographers and patients, and that's why it works. But yeah, for anyone listening who has any influence on <laughs> building design, they need to know, don't they, that yeah. this has a real impact on patients. Yeah. Absolutely. But still, even in those circumstances, the patient will still be naked or they've yeah. got to walk from yeah. the room <laughs> across. Linac rooms are big. Um, and as I say, not some patients don't mind, but some patients do. And so that's one of the reasons. It's not the, the only reason. There are other yeah. clinical, technical factors. So that's the support for all bra. Um, our other project at the moment is the, the Respire project. Um, and this came out of um, a tweet, actually. I'm on Twitter. I know you guys are on <laughs> Twitter. Um, and I, I just happened... I think somebody that I follow must must have uh, liked this person's tweet. It was a, a young um, patient who had put a tweet up to say, 
that they had been for their radiotherapy, breast cancer radiotherapy planning, and they were, they'd been asked to do voluntary deconspiration breath hold, and they very young, fit, athletic, but hadn't been able to do it correctly and was sent home to practice. And this individual was really upset and um, and anxious because they were thinking, gosh, now I'm not going to be able to um, have my treatment in the way that they want me to. What yeah. does that mean to my heart dose? And I felt duty bound to help this individual that I didn't know on Twitter. So I thought there must be a video out there that I can direct them to, quick yeah. link. So I had to search and I couldn't find anything that wasn't very equipment or department yeah. specific. And I thought sometimes it's not helpful to send something uh, that's linked that's to a department yeah. that that might be different. So I just thought, actually, there's a gap in the market here. We need to look at this. So we got a bit of money from the university. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but we worked with um, a, a a group that I I'm, I'm, I set up a group called the Breast Radiotherapy Interest Group many years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm the chair of, the, of this group, but I have a fantastic. It's we've got about over 100 members of this special interest group now. It's massive, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone in breast radiotherapy kind of knows someone. But they are a superb group. So I, I worked with that group, and so it, they were very much involved in this research. And um, but we also quite often do um, audits of practice. Um, we survey members to see what different departments across the world are doing and across the UK and we'd recently surveyed the departments and we'd asked about what are the barriers to introducing voluntary deconspiration breath hold and I expected to see things like um, the time to train staff um, you know difficulty implementing a new technique but actually the, some of the biggest challenges were patient related factors which I hadn't anticipated so um, patients not being able to do the technique was one of the, the things and I hadn't picked that up so it kind of fitted with that um, so we worked with the members of the breast radiotherapy interest group and we brought in a group we of patient representatives and we asked them about their experience and what would help and I had in my mind that what we would come up with is a nice little video that we can stick <laughs> on the internet um, and it would just show the technique and people would learn how to do it but of course when you talk to patients you get so much information and richness um, it took us in a completely different not a different direction but we got we ended up with basically several videos and a couple of podcasts on a web page. <laughs> That's what we ended up with. Um, so we have some resources. We worked with patients and healthcare practitioners, mainly radiographers, and we worked some with our physio colleagues uh, to develop um, some videos that show the process, the whole process of going in for radiotherapy. This is what it's going to be like. But when we spoke to our patients, they were saying, actually, um, it's a difficult technique because you've got to hold your breath, but you need to be relaxed. Yeah. And, um, and and having radiotherapy is really quite scary <laughs> and you don't know what to expect. So part of it was about demystifying what's going to happen so that they could be relaxed. But our, one of our patient representatives, a couple of them actually, were talking about relaxation. And of course I thought, well, why have we never thought of this before? Of course you need yeah. relaxation. Yeah. So we've got a couple of podcasts on there about how to different relaxation techniques that patients can practice at home before they start to learn the technique and then and then we got our physio to talk through the technique and how to build yourself up to doing the breath hold technique um, so we developed those resources with patients we've got patients in them it's really authentic um, and that's available free for healthcare uh, practitioners and radiographers and patients to use it's not it's not 
completely finished in that it's only in English at the moment, which is not yeah. brilliant. And the, we, we need to put subtitles on, but we run out of money, basically. So we're looking to get a little bit more money so that we can uh, translate it into different languages. We've done a little bit of a survey of, of colleagues on BRIG, the Breast Radiotherapy Interest Group, to say what are the most common languages that you get in your departments that we should translate it into. Yeah. So we're going to translate it into different languages and put some subtitles on. Um, and we are looking to, um, we, we struggled to um, get patients of colour um, in there, I'll be honest. So it's very um, uh, focused on uh, white uh, individuals, which is not brilliant. So we know that that needs to change. So this is like an elevator pitch for anyone out there who potentially has some funding, yeah. funding streams, a charity that feels that they can invest in that. It's yeah. definitely worthwhile. And I know just in terms of what Naaman and I have worked on, we always promote the Respire work because it is amazing and yeah. is obviously having impact. Have you had much feedback from colleagues that are using it? Yeah, we did. Well, we did a, a little bit of um, before we sent it out. We we sent it out to colleagues to have a look at and say, what do you think? Is there anything we should change? Is there anything that we've done wrong? Um, and it was very very positive the feedback. So we sent it to some clinical oncologists, to other radiologists doctors that weren't involved, and to patient groups, the patient advocacy groups. Very very positive feedback. But since then, it has been used in a number of departments. We get a lot of positive feedback. I'm, I've got a, a fabulous MSc student at the moment who's doing her dissertation around looking at the impact um, sort of a, as a service evaluation, um, which will be really helpful, I think, to look at the actual impact on the patient um, and the patient experience as well as um, does it... What we really want to know is does it help coach patients to do um, the best in breath and yeah. hold it? And can it be helped... To and maintain consistency of breath hold uh, throughout radiotherapy, which is what we hope. So hopefully that will be of use. In a way, it's almost like a prehab or an optimization tool. That's kind of how I've been viewing it. So any sort of patients I know coming through CT who have struggled with breath hold and are coming back again, for example, yeah. when I've sent it out, um, they found it just it's really nice. That's what they said. They can watch it in their own environment about something they're already quite scared about, yeah. having to hold your breath with your top off in a room with no one around you. Yeah. It's quite scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the feedback I've, I've had from patients I've reviewed. Uh, and I know so a couple of the guests we've had on, so Sarah Leanne Gay and Dr. Liz O'Rodin, they also said that, you know, once they've seen these resources, they've, they've put it, they've been sharing them out far and wide. Oh, brilliant. So that's fantastic. I know it's on Sarah Leanne Gay's website, Ticking Off Breast Cancer. Um, so lots of patients from across the world. I think she's got almost 10,000 followers and they've been viewing it and saying really, really nice things about it. So it's fantastic. nice. Oh, that's brilliant. That's great to hear. I mean, one of the things that we did... Um, in those uh, Respire videos is we, we showed the patient the bit that they don't see, which is the planning. So we tell them, oh, this is going to happen when you're not here, but they don't see it mm. and they have no concept. And actually when we showed it to patients in our co-design workshops, they loved it. They were like, oh, I understand now. Oh, and it's great to see it explained. Um, and it makes them understand why the technique yeah, is yeah. important and why, why it works. Um, but also we, we try to say, look, if it doesn't work, it's not the end yeah. of the world. It really is not. Yeah. This tech, the equipment we have is fantastic. You know, multi-leaf collimators and all of, all of the techie stuff, we can get around it. But it's nice if we can do it and if we can do it, great. But don't worry, we have this other stuff. And, and I think that's important to be able to show them all of this stuff. All of the techno technology behind the scenes is working for your benefit. There's something that uh, Liz said when she came on that... Um, just even as an oncologist for her, being able to show patients their plan. And it really does, I mean, when you can visualise the chest wall, you can see it obviously rising up and down yeah. and you can see that. And when patients see it, 
I've done it too, and I say, oh, that's amazing. It's actually a real thing. It's not just you're telling me yeah. to hold my breath for no reason. Yeah, and I think, it's interesting. I think it should be important as well for all mm. patients. Yeah. And, you know, it would be so much easier to be able to bring up a plan. I've said this so many times, but informed consent. You know, do the planning first and then do the informed consent, but knowing what exactly you're irradiating rather than a generalised list yeah. of these are all the side effects. Because there will be some patients who experience some side effects more than others because of the radiotherapy treatment plan and their anatomy. And I think that will obviously help as well. There's an interesting thing when for pelvic patients, when you know some prostate patients they have to do bowel and bladder prep when they're not quite understanding it what do we do we show yes. them their plan yeah we say this is your bladder that's empty yeah. this is your rectum that's full uh, yeah maybe it's something we can do a bit more yeah um, good idea another yeah. phd there well, <laughs> well i'm glad you've said that because we are we are we are planning to expand on the resources because we found them so useful so uh, i mentioned my phd student who's coming to the end of her phd and a lot of the recommendations that are coming out of, of her work, I'd like to get them up on that yeah. via website as a little, little uh, we haven't worked out how we're going to do it yet, <laughs> but um, as an add-on. So we're looking again at funding and how we can do that, because I just think there is a lot that we can do. Yeah. This has kind of yeah. given us some steps towards even more things that we've been thinking about. I think it's interesting you mentioned about the cultural differences. Obviously, it's something which is a big passion for me, but working in a department now which is very culturally diverse yeah. there are patients who for example are muslim yes. they're not happy with me maybe not they might be happy talking to me about it but if i need to look at their skin yes i can get a chaperone but they'll always feel more comfortable having a female yeah. member of staff yeah i think that's something for the future i'm very interested to look into because there's so much information you could get for example i think i've said this before but I had a patient who's from north africa so more mediterranean-y and um, they used to use olive oil just as their normal skincare, but obviously with radiotherapy it wasn't really helping. No one really knew what the problem was, but it was a, like a moisturiser which was olive oil based. But it's that simple difference, just knowing that you can really advise patients what to do. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, there's a lot of work hopefully in the future. Absolutely, and I think that's what's missing on our Respire work, I'll be honest, um, is those cultural differences. And um, I've been meeting with quite a few people recently, um, with your support actually, Naomi, to um, try and improve on that and look at the ethnic diversity and the needs of the, 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 you know, of the wider population of patients. Really important, really important. Mm. I think I could say very quickly a nice thank you to Sarah Lianagay, Sarah Lianagay who put a post out to, to her followers and might have a few patients so around about 40 who said they might want to help with some of that sort of stuff yeah that's good to look into eventually yeah. um, I suppose going into Heidi um, for anyone trying to get into research um, what sort of advice would you give oh yes uh, <laughs> it's a big question this we do get uh, uh, myself and my colleagues uh, who are in research get asked this quite a lot I think there are probably three three strands of things that people can do if they want to get into research. And the first thing, as an educator, of course, I'm going to say training, research yeah. training. I think it's really important. Um, and there was lots of different options out there, but um, the, particularly a master's in research, if you're going to do some research, I think that's a good option, a master's in research. And sometimes there are some clinical research master's uh, degrees out there. And the PhD, obviously, is like the, the ultimate in the first stage of training for, for a researcher. I love the fact you say that's the first stage of training, a PhD. Well, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. It is, but, it, but when you do, honestly, when you do a PhD and you get 
you get to the end of it, then you realise, oh my goodness, I've got to learn all this now. Because um, you learn about one bit, we learn about your research bit. And, um, so yeah, sorry about that. Um, but that's like, literally, my heart is palpating going, this is why I'm not doing PhD. I'll convince you soon, don't you worry. Um, so I, I would recommend that. Um, and it, I know it's a, not an easy option, particularly for our colleagues who are working full time. But as somebody who has been through that, yeah. I, I can honestly tell you, I worked full time while I was doing my PhD. Weren't you on maternity leave when you finished your PhD? Um, I no, I no, I, I did. I did have a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have studied while on maternity leave. I did my masters when when I was pregnant, and but my son was born when I started my PhD. But. He was a small child throughout the whole of my PhD. Yeah. He got used to me saying, um, I'll be there in a minute, I'll be there in a minute, bless him. Um, but uh, it can be done, and it is hard, but I do, un- trust me, yeah. I do understand. But the, the it opens a lot of doors um, yeah. in, in the research world if you've got a PhD, I would say. And, and oh, what an experience. It's a, it's a roller coaster. Um, that's a podcast for another day, I think. But, um, but that would be one of the first things, is, is research training, I think, is really important. I think the other thing is to try and get yourself a, a mentor, a research mentor, somebody who's experienced in research, and they don't have to be in your profession. So mm. I, you know, but if, they, if you can get somebody who's researching in a similar area, it doesn't have to be somebody in your discipline, I would say. But I think that's really valuable, and we have um, mentorship programs here, and the college has run mentorship programs before now. So look out for them. Um, ask in your local department or your hospital if they've got a mentorship scheme. See if you can get on, or you can, if you've got somebody working in your department who's really experienced at research, ask them if if they wouldn't mind mentoring you yeah. because I think that's a fantastic way to to get support. And I think I suppose the third thing is to try um, speak to your line manager to say that you're really interested in doing research and see if you can get linked with an existing research project team because you learn a lot. But I th- what I would say about that is you have to be clear to that project team what you bring to the table because, yeah. you, you know, they, they've got a lot on and they're busy and they want <laughs> to get on with the project. Um, but if you but remember what you have got to bring to the table. And now as clinical radiographers, I'm, I'm talking about clinical radiographers, but even educators, yeah. we have a lot to offer. Um, so as a clinical radiographer, you can offer that wealth of knowledge around the practicalities of delivering a research in the clinical environment that's yeah. what you bring to the table you bring to the table your understanding of patients and how to manage patients and how to support patients and some of the things that patients will or may not accept or be willing to accept in a research project so whatever it is think about what you bring or what you could offer that team and say i'm here to support and and then ask them if you because you want to learn you're there yeah. to learn and you will learn a lot by being part of a really experienced research team. So they would be the three things that I would say is if you wanting to get into research, they would be things to think about, I think. Perfect. So we're coming to the last question, um, which is ultimately around maybe top tips that you would give for anyone, not necessarily even within research, but you know, for anyone listening, are there any top tips from your professional career that you really want to get out there that you think people should kind of listen to this podcast going away and reflecting upon? Yes, well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, well, in terms of students, um, what I would say, because obviously patient experience and the patient voice is really important to me, and I would say hold that close to your heart throughout your whole of your student training and also your um, clinical practice, because I think 
you have to always try to think about what the patient is going through and consider that when you're trying to get them to do strange things and lie in a hard bed in a cold room. Yeah. Um, really just think about what what they're going through and what they may already have been through and try to understand from their perspective. And I don't think you'll go far wrong um, if you do that. Um, what I would say to um, clinical colleagues, um, as a researcher um, and somebody who's uh, research and innovation, I like to say them both together, research and innovation are both really important. Um, I think I, I was a clinical re radiographer. I understand the demands of the, the working environment. But what I would ask is, please consider that researchers and innovators are trying to help make the patient experience better yeah. and work with us. We don't always get it right, researchers, first time. But when we've got the patient's best interests at heart and we're trying to improve patient outcomes, work with us um, and help us to be creative help yeah. us to try and look at things from a different perspective and make things better um, the way we've always done it isn't always necessarily the best way and maybe the way that we're offering to do it in our research projects isn't necessarily the best way so please be critical but work with us because I think together um, we can improve patient outcomes I think we, we, we can do great things so that would be um, what I would like to say to clinical radiographers and I think um, in terms of patients and top tips for patients i'm going to pinch one of your top tips oh thanks <laughs> that i read on uh, twitter i think today you said something about uh, information is power isn't yeah. it and but there is a huge amount of information out there for patients and sifting your way through it all can be hugely difficult and finding out what what is accurate um, and what is beneficial and you put a great um, comment on today i think about Ask the clinical team, ask your care team if they can point you in the right direction to what are the good websites, what are the, the, the ones that they would recommend. Um, because quite often as a patient, and I know that from my own personal experience, you get bombarded with information leaflets at every yeah. stage <laughs> and you end up with a big massive file and sometimes you're not ready for it. Yeah. And you, you need to revisit it in your own time and, and, and do go back and sometimes you, you forget things. So... so be the director of your own information, I would say, to patients and ask your clinical team if they could recommend some, some good resource, a good website that they would, would say is, is um, you know, factually correct, has got the right level of detail, use them. Yeah. Um, that would be one thing I'd say to patients. And the other thing I would say to patients is that remember that you are the expert in you. Yeah. You know what your body is like. Um, and we talked, Naomi, you talked about skin care, didn't you, and that particular patients. Patients know what creams work on their skin, what creams definitely don't work on their skins. And that ability to be the expert in you is your superpower yeah. um, and use it wisely. Um, work with the clinical care team so that you get the right things for you, you know, as you talked about, the right things for that patient. Um, and uh, some patients really like to monitor their side effects and I think we should as practitioners work with them to allow them to do that yeah. um, and other people don't want to and that's absolutely fine but um, you know use your superpower the knowledge that you have about you and what works for you and work in partnership with your care team that's what we're here for as, as clinical practitioners and as researchers is to work in partnership um, to get the best um, and so use your knowledge of you um, to get the best options for you would be my... I don't think they're top tips, but I'll get them. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're, they're really helpful. I would say they're good top tips. I think as the main point is that as a patient, you know your body better than the practitioners do. 
any little change you're going to know it before yeah. we do so yeah really good tips Heidi thank you so much um so thank you for everyone for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Naaman Joe Granson and Joe McNamara. Um, so a huge thank you again to our guest, Professor Heidi Prost. Uh, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature discussed within the podcast. To receive your accredited CPD digital badge, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Uh, our next guest to feature will be Ben Potts, who will be discussing neurodiversity with us. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.